Hello, and welcome to the Apostolic Church Liverpool podcast. We hope the message you're about to listen to will inspire you, will be a blessing to you, and give you perspective in life. For more of such messages, you can visit our website at www.tac-lona.org.uk. You can also access other messages and resources from our YouTube channel, The Apostolic Church Europe. We hope you're blessed and inspired by today's message. God bless you. Here's the message. For this year, we are journeying through the book of Joel. And so far, we have done verses 1 to 4. And today is one of those days that had been planned for us to press pause and look back at what we are learning so that we can again, um, be on the same page and also reflect on what we are learning. Learning actually happens uh, by reflecting on what we are learning. That's when you really get it. Um, And that's what we want to do today before we move on to the next segment of the book, verses five to 12. Um, But I thought that ever since we started, we've actually not used one of the tools that we normally use to kind of give us an overview of the book. And so we'll watch a video of about six minutes on what the book of Joel is all about, according to some um, theologian animators that did that. Uh, and then would recapitulate on the few things we've learned so far from verse one to four, and that will be all for today. So let's listen. God bless us. Um, the book of the prophet Joel. It's a short collection of prophetic poems that are both powerful and puzzling. Joel is unique among the prophets for a few reasons. First of all, there's no explicit indication of when this book was written. It's most likely the period of Ezra and Nehemiah after the return from the exile, because he mentions Jerusalem and the temple, but there doesn't seem to be any kings. Also unique is that Joel is clearly familiar with many other scriptural books. He alludes to or quotes from the prophets Isaiah, Amos, Zephaniah, Nahum, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, even the book of Exodus. And this is connected with the last unique feature, and that's that Joel never accuses Israel of any specific sin. So, like many of the other prophets, he announces that God's judgment is coming to confront Israel's sin, but he never says why. And that's most likely because Joel assumes that, like him, you have been reading the books of the prophets, and so you already know all about Israel's rebellion. Now, altogether, these three features help us understand this fascinating little book, that Joel is a biblical author who was himself immersed in earlier biblical writings, and his reflection on them helped him make sense of the tragedies of his day, but also they gave him hope for the future. Let's dive in and we'll see how this book works. In chapters 1 and 2, Joel focuses on the day of the Lord. This is a key theme in the prophets, and it describes events in the past when God appeared in a powerful way to save his people or confront evil. Think about the plagues in the book of Exodus. But the prophets saw in these past events pointers to a future time when God would again confront evil among his people, but also among the nations and bring salvation to the whole world. And so here in chapters one and two, Joel has brought two parallel poems together that focus on this theme. So chapter one is about a past day of the Lord. He begins by announcing a recent disaster that a locust swarm has devastated Israel. And his description of the swarm recalls the day of the Lord against Egypt. Remember the eighth plague from Exodus chapter 10. Except this time, the locusts are being sent against Israel. 
And so Joel calls on the elders and the priests to lead the people in repentance and prayer, and then Joel actually himself repents along with all of the priests. Chapter 2 comes alongside, and it has the same poetic design and flow of thought. So Joel announces another day of the Lord, except this time it's future, not past. It's an imminent disaster coming on Jerusalem. And he begins describing what seems like another wave of locusts, but he uses military and cosmic imagery. So the locusts become God's army, like cavalry and soldiers that are marching and destroying everything in their path. And the sun is darkened, and the earth quakes, and Joel says, the day of the Lord, it's dreadful. Who can endure it? And so once more, Joel calls on the people to pray and repent. And he says how? To rend your hearts, not your garments, and return to your God. In other words, Joel knows that repentance can be just a show that you put on to get out of trouble. And he says God's not interested in that. He wants genuine change for his people to stop their selfishness and evil. And then Joel says why Israel should repent, because God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and he's full of love. He's quoting here from the book of Exodus about how God forgave Israel after they made the golden calf. And from that story, Joel learned that God's mercy and love is more powerful than his wrath and judgment. And so he leads the priests in acts of repentance and prayer, asking God to spare his people. Then right after these two poems, the scene shifts, and we have a short narrative about God's response to the repentance of Joel and the people. So God was filled with passion for his land, and he had pity on his people. And then God says he's going to reverse the devastating effects of this day of the Lord and turn it from judgment into salvation. So first he's going to defeat the threatening invaders, which were presumably the locusts, and he's going to turn them all away to their own ruin. Then he's going to restore the devastated land and bring it back to life, making it abundant once more. And finally, God says he's going to bring his divine presence among his people. It will become real and accessible to everyone. Now up to this point, the poems tell a powerful story about Joel leading Israel to see how their sin led to disaster and divine judgment, and that with the God of mercy there is always hope. But Joel sees in all of these past events an image of the future day of the Lord. And so in the final section of the book, Joel writes three more poems that match God's three-part response. And he weaves together images from other prophetic books <coughs> and expands it all into a vision of hope for all creation. So first, the hope of God's presence among his people gets expanded into a promise about how one day in the future, God's own spirit, his personal life presence, will fill not just the temple, but all of his people. And here Joel is drawing upon the promises of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel that God's spirit would come to transform and empower his people so that they can truly love and follow him. Joel then picks up God's promise that he'll confront the threatening invader. And Joel sees in these ravaging locusts a similarity to the arrogant, violent nations of his own day that ravage and oppress people. And so he draws upon the promises of Isaiah and Zephaniah and Ezekiel about the future day of the Lord, when God will confront evil among all the nations and turn their violence back on themselves, bringing justice to right all wrongs. And finally, Joel picks up the images of the land's restoration, and he sees here a hope for the renewal of all creation. So he draws on the promises of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah that God's final day of justice will be followed by a restoration of the entire world, a new Eden, where God's presence in Jerusalem 
will flow out like a river and bring about cosmic renewal. And so Joel's poem ends with God's forgiveness and mercy opening up a whole new creation. And so this little book of Joel, it explores profound ideas about how human sin and failure wreak such devastating destruction in our world, about how God longs to show mercy to those who will just own up to their sin and confess it, and about how all of that leads us to hope that God will one day defeat evil in our world, but also inside of us, and bring his healing presence to make all things new. And that's what the book of Joel is all about. Thank you. Oh, I shouldn't even have stopped sharing since I still need this light. But thanks for listening and watching that. And that's, I mean, that's the whole book in a nutshell. But so far, we've only zoomed in or covered verses one to four, and I'll read it again for us. This is the word of the eternal one that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. It says, hear these elders and leaders, all who live in the land, should, place, should pay close attention. Has anything like this ever happened? No, not in your lifetimes or your fathers. So be sure to tell this story to your sons and daughters, and your sons should tell their sons, and so on for generations. And verse 4, we have been invaded. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust consumed. What the swarming locusts left, the creeping locust consumed. What the creeping locust left, the stripping locust has finished off. <coughs> and so far, the main lessons that we have drawn from that is about these six points. From very first verse, we saw that God still speaks the same way God's message came to Joel. God's message still comes to us today. And secondly, that as we grow in life, we must trust God to be sensitive. You will notice that when he started his message, his first addressee were elders. He spoke first to the elders, uh, believing that if anybody should be aware of what is going on, at least they should know. They should be sensitive enough to see that something is going on here. This locust invasion isn't just um, an ordinary um, occurrence. There is more to this message. And of course, as we also grow in life, um, we need to be sensitive to what God might be doing at time. And then the third thing we saw from verse three about telling the story to our children and then they telling it to their children and on and on like that is that we must be intentional in passing our faith, the dealings of God, the testimonies that we experience in our faith experience. We must be intentional in passing that on to the next generation. And then the verse four about the swarming locusts and cutting locusts and all sorts of locusts um, coming again and again to do stuff. We noticed from that that God can use anything because I mean, if you see just one single locust, even a small boy can kill it because it's just a tiny little insect. But their strengths, I mean, for, for something as insignificant as that to be used by God to wreck such havoc and pass on such a mighty message many of which, I mean, part of which we still continue to look back to these many thousands of years later, shows that God can use anything, even you. We are not too insignificant. But there's another lesson from those locusts, and that's the fact that their strength is in their numbers. Um, the, a single locust will not cause havoc. But when they come, without having a king, but in their unity and mighty numbers, they can accomplish more. And I remember um, when Deacon was taking us that part, he 
took us back to this scripture that says one shall chase a thousand and two shall chase, shall put 10,000 to flight. I mean, that there was an uh, implication like that in the scriptures and that passes a message across. And lastly, that sin is a reproach to any people. All of this invasion of locust and how God we use that as a metaphor for things to come and things still yet to come uh, is all because the people were in sin. And so we observed as well that sin is a reproach, not just to the Israelites back in the days, it still continues to be a reproach to anybody, a reproach being anything that would, that would bring um, anything but God's glory, anything that would not glorify God, anything that will bring shame, disappointment, bring you know, negativity in that sense. And that's what sin does to any people at any point in time. So that's summarily what we've done so far. Um, from next Sunday, by God's grace, we'll move on to the next pericope, that's verses 5 to 12, and we'll look at the things that God might want us to see from those parts. Before we get there, any questions while well, we wait till the next part? Any questions, any contributions? Okay, I've been quiet. That's fine. We just thought we needed to pause and reflect on what we've done so that we will then move on and build on that as we move on to another part of the book. Yes. Someone yeah, go on. Pastor usually says, I wanted to ask, uh, like Pastor usually said that he wants to throw a spanner into it. Um, I wanted to ask why such, such kinds of uh, havoc, low cost and co, we Why? don't we don't see it in uh, in our days, is uh, it because we don't sin as much as they do, then or not? Good question. Of course, um, as of this point in history, number one, who says we don't see it in our day? I mean, that's part of why we say we must be sensitive to what God is doing. There are many things that are going on in the world that are not necessarily the way things are supposed to be, and it's also at the bottom of it all. If you trace it down, it's someone's sin and someone's iniquity finding expression. The war in Ukraine, for instance, is not normal. It's not, you can, we can look at that as just history playing out, but we can also look at, at that from the perspective of sin is a reproach and God is bringing some sort of intervention. What is God saying to all of us that are believers in the non-war zones in that time? So there's that part of it. But the other part of it is to say, all of these things we read in the scriptures, especially um, in the Old Testament coming on into the New, is God has chosen a people that he has called his own people. And he wants to write a story with them that would be a blessing to the whole world to show many aspects of his character. And of course, to show that from eternal, eternity past to eternity future, he has a plan for mankind, a plan that is glorious. And so all of these things that we are seeing, the cycles of him, bringing judgment upon them when they sin and things like that will lead to a climax in when Jesus Christ comes and when he dies, when he's resurrected and pays the ultimate price. So it's a story that is still being told as of this part that we are reading anyways, that we then eventually find culmination or climax in the story of Jesus. So that was where it's all going. And of course, even Jesus' story has not finished. We know that he's coming back again to bring the final ultimate glorification to all of this story, which is part of what Joel was saying in chapter three, 
that a time is coming when all of these um, wrongness in our world will be righted by the just God who would bring justice, that would bring peace and hope and love for all eternity. Amen. Sister, I mean, Mommy, when you raise your hand briefly. Praise God. Hallelujah. One thing I just picked up from there and I'm wondering about it is uh, like uh, teaching your generation, your children, for them to teach their children, the generation to continuously. Because looking at what is going on in the world today is because the forefathers, especially in this world, this part of the world where we are staying, they did not pass that pattern to their children. And that's why these days, I remember Reverend saying that where we normally used to have our prayer meeting, they yeah. used to have about, about three services. Mm. And they, that three service, is packed full, even some people will be standing outside. Mm -hmm. But what happened along the line? Because they did not pass it to their children. Mm -hmm. And that's why when you come to church these days, all the churches are standing, they are selling it, turning the building of God to house people are living on it. So it's very important that we let the children know what we know. And at the same time, they will pass it to their children in that way, all these things happening will not continue. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you very much, Ma. Very, very apt. Okay, I'm looking at the time. Uh, just say a word of prayer. 